Welcome to the Making After School Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Making After School Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, a division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. Attracting young adults to work with programs supporting youth is important, yet sometimes can be difficult to achieve. According to Project for Change, a nonprofit organization which addresses the needs, voice, and rights of youth, describe youth work as a unique educational activity designed for a variety of environments to support a young person's personal, social, and educational development. Programs, as well as educational institutions providing services to youth, also must overcome the lack of funding, resources, and community support. One such agency which supports youth initiatives is YouthGov. YouthGov was created by the Interagency Working Group on Youth Programs to identify and engage key government, private, and nonprofit organizations that can play a role in improving the coordination and effectiveness of programs serving and appealing to youth. This brings us to today's topic of the Megan F. School Cool podcast, which features the relationship between governmental agencies and youth serving programs. My guest today is Ms. Fernanda Marrero, who is the program manager for the City of Houston's Mayor's Office of Education. Fernanda is a first-generation college graduate of the University of Houston and a certified teacher through the Teach Houston program. She is currently working on her master's in education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Fernanda has a passion for making STEM more accessible to underrepresented groups and has worked with programs which makes computer science education accessible to all students. As stated earlier, she currently works for the City of Houston's Mayor Office of Education as a program manager. The City of Houston's Mayor's Office of Education has embarked on the journey to develop the Houston Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. This project comes from the City's Connecting Children to Nature initiative a national partnership between the National League of Cities and the Children and Nature Network. Fernanda, thank you for being my guest today. How are things going on your end? Yeah, of course, Mike. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be featured on the podcast and share my story, my, my immigration and my educational journey, and then the work I'm doing at the Mayor's Office of Education. Sounds great. We're going to start off with what created your interest in education and educational related issues? Yeah, so the, the first spark in me that, that started my interest in education was in eighth grade when I was 13. So I was in the science club at my middle school. It was Science UIL, so we would meet after school with our club sponsor, Mr. David Land, who was also my science teacher at the time. We'd compete against other schools and all of that stuff that UIL usually does. And I loved being in that space. Um, I remember we were all united by our, our passion for science and it was a really positive learning community. And like I mentioned, I was in eighth grade at the time. And so there were younger students in the, in the Science UIL club, sixth and seventh graders. And they were essentially my mentees. So the way that Mr. Land structured after school practices, you know, he was really big on group work, on collaborative learning. And he knew that we were stronger when we were a team and when we learned from one another. So he would structure groups. So there'd be a mix of older students and younger students. And I remember one specific day after school, 
we were in our study groups and we were preparing for the state championship meet, which was going to be in San Antonio that year. And as the eighth grader of my group, I was leading our review. And I remember I had, I had my little whiteboard. I was going over concepts. I was quizzing people in my group. And at the time I didn't know because I was just 13, but that's a lot of what teachers do. You know, I, I was essentially being like a mini teacher at the age of 13, a mini educator. And I remember Mr. Land, uh, like, like all good teachers do, was circulating the room, checking in on us, letting us do our own thing. It was a very student-centered way of studying, uh, and, but, you know, checking in on us. And he stopped by our table, and I remember him not saying a single word. He was just observing us, listening. And then um, when I kind of finished my little spiel, I, I was probably giving some little lecture. I, I don't remember specifically what I was talking about. Um, he, he says to me directly, you know, you'd be a really good educator. And up until then, I had never considered going into education. Um, but what Mr. Lang said that day would just completely change my life. And that's why to this day, um, I'm just a big advocate that teachers have a huge impact on this world. Um, I don't even know if Mr. Line remembers that he said that, but it really opened my eyes and it changed my life. And now I'm at the Harvard Grad School of Ed and honestly, it all goes back to that one comment. And I thought, oh, maybe I would be. And so, so here we are now. That is an awesome story. Since you are a first generation college graduate, and there are still many students who will be the first in their family to attend college. Can you share your educational journey? Yeah, my educational journey starts all the way back when my family immigrated to the United States from Mexico when I was just two years old. And so whenever I get this question, I like to start there. I like to go all the way back to Mexico in 1998 because that's a part of my story and that's my foundation. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate that my immigration story involves my dad being a U.S. citizen. So he was born in America and through him, my sister and I were able to become naturalized citizens. And, you know, our story is very similar to the stories of other immigrant families who chose to come to the U.S. Um, we wanted to follow the, the famous American dream. And both my parents, you know, they grew up in Mexico. Um, they spent their whole childhoods there. And even though they hadn't lived in the United States, they had heard of better opportunities, better educational opportunities to be specific. And they wanted my sister and I, my older sister and I, to receive a better education than they did. And so we moved here. I have very little memory because I was only two. Um, but you know, the personal sacrifices that my parents made to leave a country they've always lived in, they left all their family and all their friends, didn't know a single person here. Um, you know, it was a really life-changing decision for our family. And, and sometimes it's difficult to imagine what the alternative would have been like. So we get to the United States, specifically to Mission, Texas. It's a small city in Hidalgo County along the U.S.-Mexico border. And shortly after, my parents enroll me in Head Start. And so for listeners who don't know, Head Start is a federal program that serves preschool aged children who belong to families that live below the poverty line and works on school readiness. So by the time they get to pre-K or kindergarten, they are ready to go and really tries to close those achievement, those opportunity gaps. 
And so Head Start was my first formal educational experience. And even to this day, I have really fond memories of my time there. I really only have a few random memories, but those memories are often, there's often like a teacher in there. I mean, I don't even remember my teacher's name, um, but I remember them being very caring, very nice. They would talk to my parents. They would make sure I was doing my homework at home and that I was getting the support that I needed outside of Head Start. I'm also a big believer that it's important to pause and reflect on how you get to where you are and uh, just grounding yourself. And I, I think during those times when you feel like you've made it, I think some people would see that I'm at Harvard and be like, oh, she's made it. <laughs> I think it's really important to, to really think about the sacrifices that have been made for you to be where you are. And also very importantly, the, the village of supporters that got you there. And so for me, I have my family, my friends, teachers, so many teachers, professors, and then just general mentors as well. And Mike, you brought up that I'm a first-gen college student. So I'd also like to talk more about that because um, I, I learned in a very difficult way that the higher you go, the less we see people who look like you and me. And I think people who meet me today, they are jumping into a point in my life where where they see Harvard, and I'm very proud of that, but you know, it's it's not the full story. If you, if you jump into this part of my journey, it, it would really do a, a huge disservice to, to my journey and everything that's happened up to now. And my educational journey as a first gen college student, it was rough, just to, to put it simply. I, I had a very non-traditional route, so I transferred schools twice. I attended a total of three uh, institutions, three schools, and I changed my major four times. And also, normally people graduate from their bachelor's degree in four years, that's the standard. So I graduated in five and a half years. So, you know, I kind of took a little bit longer than most people. Um, and so I, I did my first year in, in Dallas. Then the second year I went back home that, that was the first time I transferred to South Texas College, which was a community college. And you know, I think there's also lots of stereotypes about the type of student that goes to a community college. And so for me, attending a community college, honestly, it was, I had some of the most caring professors, even when I think about, you know, University of Houston and then Dallas Baptist University, the, the support that I received at the community college was the best support I got, even comparing to a four-year university. And so um, I also think attending a community college and then also seeing now that I'm at Harvard, you know, I, I really do that, that. I hope that shows students that, you know, don't let society kind of shape what your future is gonna look like. Like the world is still open to you and it really is up to you to, to really take the reins and take over your life, you know? And I, I struggled a lot to navigate higher education. I mean, even, even now at Harvard, I, I'm still struggling. Everything is still brand new to me. I do not have a roadmap. And most first-gen students, um, I think we're very hard on ourselves because we're, we're trying to do the, the best that we can with the resources that we have available to us. And sometimes we don't always know what we're doing, but it's important that we keep going. And, you know, I'd say for me, it worked out 
Um, but I, I didn't arrive here without lots of bumps along the road, you know, all of those challenges, even, even the memories that are, are still very painful to think about, those are also part of my journey. And I, I don't want to erase those from my story. And so I feel an, an obligation to speak about those barriers that I face because they're still there. The barriers are still there for the younger generations. Um, and they were there long before I got there. Um, and this is just one of the many reasons why I wanted to study education policy at the graduate level. This next question has two parts. The first part is why is it important to have initiatives that are targeting girls for STEM type careers? And the second part is based on your involvement in this area, have you seen an increase in the number of females who have an interest in STEM? Yeah, so uh, Mike, at the beginning, you mentioned that I'm a, I'm a certified science teacher. And so uh, one of my, my teaching philosophies is that all children should have access to high quality education, period. And specifically because I do have a STEM teaching background, when we talk about STEM education, there's, there's lots of stereotypes about who belongs in STEM, um, what you should look like, how you should talk, how you should act. And I've had the, the chance to teach kids of all ages, from third graders to 11th graders. And you see the difference in the ways girls or kids from marginalized genders, how they approach STEM when they're younger versus when they're older. And so kids are naturally very curious and STEM is the perfect field for curious kids. So there's so many exciting and engaging experiments you can do with them. And as an educator, I think it's it can be disheartening to see the impact that stereotypes have on children. And so that's why I'm a big advocate for initiatives that target girls and target students of color. Um, you know, I don't have specific data points to mention, but just from my general experiences, which are so valuable, what I've seen in the classroom, um, I do feel there's an increase in the number of girls interested in STEM. Um, I think educators and many advocates in the field of education have been doing this work for a long time. And there's lots of organizations that are actively putting on summer programming or after school programming and awareness campaigns. So they're very active on social media and they're trying to break down some of those stereotypes that are in STEM. And so it, it won't be an overnight change, but I do feel like we are headed in the right direction. Great, great. Can you tell us about your current work with the City of Houston's Mayor's Office of Education, particularly your role with the Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights? So one of the newest initiatives coming out of the Mayor's Office of Education is the Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights, or COBOR for short, that's C-O-B-O-R. And a, a cohort, to put it simply, is a list of outdoor experiences that every child has a right to experience in the city of Houston. And so it's, it's very much in the planning phase at the moment, um, but I, I should start by providing some context. Mike, earlier you mentioned it. It's, it's part of the National League of Cities, um, cities, uh, cities Connecting Children to Nature, CCCN, and that's a program that supports municipal leaders in promoting nature accessibility. And so that's where the COBOR comes from. And up to now, there are four other cities in the United States that have adopted a COBOR 
that's Baltimore, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, and Austin. So Houston would be the fifth in the nation and the second in Texas. So that's some background for the Cobor. And the initiative's mission is to ensure that all Houston children have an abundance of outdoor memories and experiences that they'll remember their whole lives. Um, I think everyone uh, has a, a childhood memory related to the outdoors and it, it could have been a time you visited the beach with your family or playing soccer outside or basketball with your cousins. And so that's what the COBOR is about. We want to make sure that, you know, in a time where kids seem to be more glued to their phones or to their tablets or to the TV, that the city shows that we want our children to also be playing outside because that's a really important part of childhood. So the COBOR, it won't only be a list, although there are 12 specific rights that are gonna be on the list, but it'll also serve as a symbol of the goals that our city has for its children. And so in, in Austin, I like to use this example because it's a perfect um, perfect example of how the COBOR can be a symbol. Uh, their Parks and Rec Department partnered with Austin ISD. And so they have a poster of the COBOR in every single school in Austin ISD. So every time those kids go to school, they see a poster of their elected leaders promising them, you know, a list of rights. And so that is a powerful messaging tool. And so we're hoping to do something very similar, um, of course, better. We, we always want to, to be a standout city. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to create a, an online pledge and invite community members to sign the pledge to show their support of the COBOR. And our goal is to get at least 1,000 signatures, but I think we can do more, but we're starting there. And this is going to be another way we are raising awareness and educating the community about nature accessibility. And then just one last thing, and perhaps the most exciting part of the entire project is that the plan is for this to culminate into a city council resolution. So it's not just going to be a PDF that lives online and that we kind of just forget, but we are actually partnering with the Mayor's Office of Resilience and Sustainability. So it's officially going to be a joint effort with another mayor's office. And we are going to draft and present a resolution presented to council so they can vote on it in the coming months. And that's another reason why we want community signatures, because we want to show council members that Houstonians support this initiative. And you know, it's not often that initiatives lead to a city council resolution. So this is a really exciting project to be a part of and to learn about uh, because it has great potential to influence local policies and in general benefit children in the city. Sounds like a really great project. And I think you are gonna be doing some um, awesome things with it. So I really look forward to seeing what happens in the future. Um, why do you think it's important for young adults like yourself, as well as other community members, be involved with youth-related issues? At my core, um, I am an educator. And at the moment, you know, I'm in graduate school and I'm working at the mayor's office. I'm not currently in the classroom. But um, deep down, I, I like to say I have a teacher's heart. And so, you know, I have lots of experience working with youth, specifically middle school and high school. and. You know, the youth of today, they really need our support. Um, I was I was in high school last in uh, 2016, that's when I graduated. 
And you know, that's relatively recent, but a lot has happened since 2016. Even now when I talk to cousins who are in that high school age or former students who are still in high school, it's hard for me to relate to them, even though I'm also fairly young because so much has changed, um, you know, politically, socially, an uptick in mental health awareness, um, COVID, that's something that no other generation, uh, or recent generation has had to go through. And so today's young people, they are navigating life under much different circumstances. And I worry as an educator that we aren't keeping up with those needs and that we're not providing the supports that they really need in order to succeed. Um, and also their teachers, they are not being provided the support that they need. And so I think adults, we can learn a lot from young people. Um, I think it's time that lots of adults, especially decision makers, get off their pedestal and realize that young people have a lot of important things to say. And the youth of today, they are very smart. They are very up to date with what's going on in the news. Um, I, I taught in Houston ISD last fall, so about a year ago. And, you know, there'd be some development in national politics. And the next day I would hear them talking about it. And I never talked about them when I was in high school. You know, I mean, I was kind of aware of what was going on, but never had like good political discourse with my friends. And that happens nowadays. And it's pretty common to overhear that if you're teaching in a high school. And so I think one actionable item for listeners is to consider mentoring a young person. There are some formal mentorship programs out there that are constantly searching for young adults to mentor youth. Um, so I, I think that's one way. If you have a young person in your life, you can also informally mentor them. That could be as simple as checking in on them, sending them a text. It could be your younger sibling or your younger cousin. Um, it doesn't have to be, oh, super formalized thing where you meet once a month. Um, and there's also lots of ways to be involved in youth-related issues, even if you don't directly work in education. For example, volunteering for an organization that serves youth, that's another option. And uh, a, a really important way to, to advocate for youth and be involved in youth-related issues, I think is to be involved in the political process um, there are lots of policies out there, current ones, that are directly impacting youth. And they're paying attention to those. And their youth are also paying attention if the adults are paying attention and if they're doing something about it. Because most of them can't vote. Maybe if they're 18 and if they're seniors, but that's a very small sliver of all the students who are paying attention to politics. And so I think it's... It's cliche to say, but the youth are our future and they are tomorrow's leaders. And one day, very soon, they're going to get older and they'll be able to vote. And they'll think, why did the adults in my life when I was a high school student, you know, what were they doing? And I think it's really important that we do right by them, not only because they're going to hold us accountable one day. So maybe that's uh, that's something we should keep in mind, but also because they deserve to live in a world that cares for their well-being. Thank you.
Amanda, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Making That School Cool podcast. Uh, I love all the information you've shared with us, and I, I wish you the best of luck up there on the East Coast, Upper East Coast, and continue to do the great work you've been doing thus far. Yeah, thank you again, Mike, for the invitation to chat with you. Uh, this is a good experience, and I appreciate you reaching out. As always, I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this week's episode, which focused on the importance of young adults working with youth initiatives. Please join us for future episodes as we continue to explore issues relevant to the out-of-school time field.